Well, welcome. If you're new with us tonight, welcome to Capri Chapel Running Springs for our midweek service where we gather together and uh, get a little bread and a little worship during the midweek, get refreshed a little bit. I want to encourage you, I sent out an email over the prayer chain, uh, we should have the larger petitions uh, hopefully in the next couple of days. Um, Pastor Jack Hibbs, uh, myself, a few other pastors have uh, joined together and encouraged and there is now a ballot referendum initiative that's underway. Uh, we have to gather about half a million signatures by uh, November 12th, I believe we can do it, uh, to repeal AB 1266, which our governor, and then, which our governor, uh, signed into law eight days ago. And so it is now, uh, will go into effect January 1 unless it's repealed. And so you ladies will no longer be safe in the ladies' restrooms. You could very easily have a guy. Uh, in the stall right next to you. It is now law. It hasn't gone into effect yet, uh, but it is law. And it will go into effect on January 1. So uh, you're going to see a petition that looks like this. I send out the web link. You can do this now and send them in individually. We're also going to have them here at the church for us to sign them corporately. Um, it's just absurd. Uh, it, it is believed that transgendered people... Uh, whatever that actually means, but in the broadest definition, uh, make up less than two-tenths of one percent of all of the population. So that means that we are now writing laws to benefit two-tenths of one percent, while 99.98 percent of the rest of us have our rights infringed upon. And so this is just dumb legislation. Uh, it's crude. It's obnoxious. It has nothing to do with civil rights. It has everything to do. And if you look at the list, which is on the website, which is now up, uh, if you look at the list, virtually every organization that had its hand on this legislation was nothing other than a gay lobby. And so it's just an absurdity. It needs to stop. And so I'm going to give you the opportunity to make your voice heard here in this church. Uh, if our government has anything to say about it, they can contact me. I haven't moved in a while. And uh, I just uh, we just can't let these things go. Cannot let these things go. It's just time. If we don't stand up, if we don't stand up, folks, we're in trouble. Uh, I just believe with all my heart. That it, this, this decay of the moral fabric of our society, uh, just has to stop. And if, if we as the body of Christ, who know better, and whose morals are being afflicted, uh, basically it's illegal to be a Bible-believing Christian in the United States. Uh, the Pentagon is now persecuting Christian chaplains as well. Uh, it's just, it's absurd. And so it's time to stand up. We're gonna stand up. We'll see what the Lord does. Uh, I'm encouraged. Yes. If you have your voting rights still intact, the answer is yes. Yeah. If you, so, if you're if you're not if there isn't something in your record that would cause you to lose your voting rights, then yes, you have to be a registered voter in order for that signature to count. And of course, uh, 
quite frankly, uh, it it just is it's insane. I I don't have any idea how we can have gotten to this place in such a short period of time. With that, if you turn in your Bibles to the book of Hosea, uh, we will be picking up in chapters 8 and 9 tonight. But uh, due to all the things that have been going on between VBS and Mammoth Camp and uh, us being gone on our family vacation, we haven't been together in a while, at least me and you all. And so uh, we've been a little bit... uh, out of it here with regard to Hosea, so we're going to take a little bit of a journey backwards to chapter 7, but it's really just to put it back into context, and remember that context in Scripture matters. Um, Please always focus on those issues which might be resolved by context. Sometimes people look at their Bible and, and it really does appear to be Greek or Hebrew to them. Uh, simply because they don't read far enough back or far enough forward to gather the context of what's being said. And so uh, these words are prophetic with regard to Israel, and so they happened literally to them, and we'll get that especially this week and next. Uh, But it also is speaking prophetically into our lives, and I think it, it couldn't be at a more fortuitous time than now looking at where our country is, looking at where we're going, and looking at the absurdity of these fights. If I were to ask any of you, and, and we, have, we have a smattering uh, of many different races in this congregation, as weird as it is that we're in this little town on the top of a mountain, I don't believe there's anybody in here who, who hates someone else because they're a different color. I just don't believe that. And yet, the cry of the day is is everything is about us hating one another because we have different skin colors. It's just there is a, we're in a time in our nation's history where I where I fear the very fabric of our society is being ripped out. And so we need to look at these passages with that regard, because when the nation Israel turned its back on God. And hear me very clearly here. I'm not trying to make a direct correlation, but I am saying very definitely symbolically and very definitely in a sense of the truth, when the nation Israel turned its back on God, it did not go well for them. They are God's chosen people to this day, and God was willing to punish them to the extent of sending them into bondage and making them a non-entity for more than 2,000 years. If God will do that to his chosen people, then I ask you a very simple question that requires not a lot of mental ability on your part. Do you think that any other people group, including Americans, is going to escape the justice of God if we continue to tell God that we don't care what he thinks, and yet we want his blessings. And I say to you, and you all would say to me, I doubt it very seriously. Does that mean that God's grace isn't sufficient? Of course not. Does it mean that there isn't repentance that we can engage in even corporately as a nation and see God stay his hand? Of course not. God was looking for repentance with the nation Israel, but he didn't get it. And that is my point. When any people group begins to go down that death spiral of telling God, We're done. We're not listening to you. We don't care what you say. 
we're going this direction, we know you said it was wrong. When any people group does that, you're in trouble. Don't delude yourself. Don't deceive yourself. That's why we're going back to chapter 7. Would you pray with me? Father, thank You for Your grace which abounds. And Lord, I don't want to bring anybody in this room into bondage. I don't want someone to hear this on the internet or wherever it might end up and, and God mistake that Your grace is not sufficient because Your grace is sufficient. But Your grace cost You Your Son. Your grace cost Jesus His life. You paid for it with blood. And it's not to be trampled on. And there is a price for rebellion. There's a price for continued sin. There's a price for shaming grace, trampling upon it. And God, we don't want to see our country pay it. We don't want to pay it. And so, Lord, whether it's us as individuals, us as a nation, we as the church, or Israel as a nation, God, we cry out to You. Lord, help us to turn, repent, step away from sin, God, that can bind and blind. Lord, help us to walk in Your ways. Encourage us in the truth. Lord, we thank You for the power of Your Word, and we turn to it now expecting for You to speak to us. We ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, the one and only Savior. Amen. If you go back, we, we see these silly similes. And frankly, when you look at them, it's kind of like, well, that's, that's cute. You can look at it that way unless you realize what God's saying. Unless you turn your attention to the truth of what He's trying to convey. Because nothing God writes, nothing God wrote, nothing He spoke was meant to be dismissed. Sometimes I think we dismiss Scripture because it makes us uncomfortable. We dismiss Scripture because maybe it points out a situation that exists in our lives that we would rather forget about. And so I point you back. It said the theme there, and I want you to realize this, that compromise with the world leads to unbalanced conduct into immature character. That's what it does. When you look at your life, if you compromise with the world, you will have an unbalanced manner of conduct and you absolutely will have immature character. You can't help it because that is the world. And so Israel was doing that. They're in the midst of these chapters before us to where God has spoken to them. He says, this is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to act. These are the things that I'm promising you if you do. Here's the issues that lie before you. These things that are wrong, you must stop. And they're just going, "Uh uh-uh. Makes us too uncomfortable. People say bad things about us. You know, those Hittites over the next valley, I mean, they're, they're going to call us names. Oh, those, those Edomites on the other side of the Jordan, man, they don't like us. We get up there in the north, I mean, we go into the central valley, and the Samaritans, they're pointing their finger at us, saying, you know, what about these crazy Jews? And so what do they do? They begin to look at life through the eyes of their enemy. Say, well, that's not so bad. I mean, after all, I mean, who doesn't enjoy a good orgy? 
I said that to shock you, but that's exactly what happened. And they were doing it in church. They're going to church and hitting on each other. You see, when we compromise with the world, we're setting ourselves up for some very unbalanced conduct. Absolutely pathetic, immature character. Because you know what? And let me prove this to you. We dismiss that type of behavior in children because it's expected because they don't know no better, right? But when it comes to an adult, we expect different behavior from them. I say to you, it's because it's immature. It's the character, it is the nature that people have when they're either not saved or they're babes in Christ. That shouldn't have been where Israel is. It should not be where we are. We know better. When people chastise me for my stance on some of these political issues, I don't have any problem taking the bullets. Because I know better. I know better. It's where this road's going. We've seen it before. You can look at the annals of history and see where this goes. I don't need it to happen to to my country. I don't need to see it in my neighbors. It doesn't need to happen in my family for me to understand that it's immature, absolutely unbalanced conduct. And so he uses these similes. And basically he says, here's my point, act your age. If you're spiritually mature, act like you're spiritually mature. You mean, really, you can't withstand that type of temptation, you know, because your neighbor called you uh, some type of name, some epithet, some bizarre thing that they believe they ought to be able to do because they think it's right and your Bible says it's wrong? You take their position? I say to you, God forbid. God forbid. He goes on to say, speaking of the pride of Israel, that they're like a silly dove. They thought nothing was going to happen. So I shared with you when we did this verse, if you've ever hunted doves, they're dumb as bricks. They are perhaps the stupidest bird that God put on this earth. They'll sit there on the ground and complete their nests are made in the open. They lay their eggs on the ground. Nobody will see us. Be right over here, and I'll just be real still, and nobody will see us. That's how the Israelites were treating God. If we just don't move, He won't see us. If we do it in the dark, He won't see us. If nobody says anything, God won't know about it. They were being idiotic. They were being silly. You go out hunting doves, all you need is a shotgun and a dog. That's it. Dog runs through the field, doves go flying, the doves go dying. That's how it works. Because they take off as soon as the dog comes. Oh, he sees us! God always sees us. 
They should have turned to the spirit. Instead, they turned to the flesh. They were flying to and fro. They were buying anything. You, you, you see, they were flying here. They were flying there. Oh, the king of Assyria is the big guy this week. And the king of Egypt's the big guy next. You know, we got to go see Pharaoh. We'll go over here to the Samaritans and we'll make some allegiance with them. You know, the Assyrians, man, they're really powerful in the north. We'll go hang out with them for a while. Instead of standing on the rock, instead of being firm and convicted that the truth was the truth and that's where they were going to stand, they just went everywhere. We'll believe this one day, we'll believe that the next. Now we've got it's a recipe for disaster. Ultimately, the final image was out of a faulty bow. A bad bow, you can have the best arrows on earth. Some of us in here have compound hunting bows. My boys have some compound bows. They're not really expensive ones, but they've got a couple of nice compound bows. And when you have nice compound bows, there's something you have to buy as nice arrows. But let me tell you something. The arrows can be really nice, and if you don't have a good bow, you can't throw them far enough to do much with them. Okay? You just can't. You need the bow. And so the picture here is there's not enough strength in the human arm to take the arrow. I don't care who in this room grabs a wonderful broadhead hunting arrow with all kinds of razor tip things on it and tries to throw it into a target. It ain't even going to stick. Why? Because the arm of flesh cannot sustain you. The arm of flesh can't sustain you. It's you. And when you run out of power, the arrow's out of power. And so it says, the weakness that is our humanness, a faulty bow. God had called them to be able to hit the target. He had prepared them. He had given them the weapons necessary. And they're out there grabbing their arrow out of their quiver. Go, well, just take that. So you, you ain't scaring the devil by hucking arrows at him, okay? And the bow here really is a picture of your spiritual life in Christ. It's who you are because God made you that way. It's His strength opposed to your strength. Do you want to walk in that strength or do you want to walk in your own weakness? Because I can tell you this, your strength is going to run out rather rapidly when faced with the enemy. God's strength will not run out when you're faced with the enemy. And so all of this leads us to a single conclusion that this deception that they were under was the worst kind of deception of all. It was self-deception. And I want to talk to you just a moment. Many people fall prey to the very same thing to which Satan himself fell prey. And that is self-deception. Believing you're bigger, you're badder, you're better. Believing that your strength is sufficient in and of yourself for the attacks of the enemy. And if that's you, your day is coming. When you're going to run out of spiritual gas, because your gas isn't spiritual, it's carnal. You're going to think it's spiritual. 
because you will deceive yourself into believing that the things that you are doing, either God is okay with or they're sufficient and neither is true. God expects his kids to be dependent upon him. And when we are dependent upon us, it's self-deception. We're walking around going, well, you know, I got this made. You know, I can handle this. No weapon fashioned against him will prosper. The battle belongs to the Lord. And the moment we try and fight the fight with the weapons of flesh, you're going to get beat up. You're going to lose. You may win the war because of grace, but you're going to lose the battle because of flesh. And so God speaks to them through these similes. And He now moves on as we move on to chapter 8. And He begins to give us this picture of what happens when you trample the covenants of God. What had God said to the Jewish people? He said, I make with you this day an everlasting covenant that Abraham of you, the Lord will bless you and he will make the whole world prosper through you and your descendants will become as numerous as the sands of the sea. He says to David, I will make an eternal covenant with you that there will be one who will sit on the throne of David perpetually. That throne's been empty, but it hasn't been vacated because Jesus is coming back to occupy that throne. God had made a promise to the Jews that he would take care of them, but he conditioned it this way. He said, if you keep my commandments. He said, if you keep your part, then you'll see the blessings of me keeping my part. But if you forsake the commandments, then you're going to reap what you have sown. You're going to get what you bought, so to speak. Anybody ever had buyer's remorse? I have. I bought cars, I bought, you name it, I bought so many things and you, you turn around. Isn't the worst one the car one? To where you've been out car shopping and you, and you drive home and you're in this car and you're going, dear God, what have I done? I have 69 more of these payments to make. It sounded good. You see, you can have buyer's remorse and still be stuck with the car, amen? Yeah? Yeah? So, it's better that you come to the conclusion you probably ought not buy the car before you sign the documents. That's what God's saying. He said, Israel, I've made a covenant with you, and here's my part, and here's your part. And my part is going to be true eternally. I'll keep it eventually. But the short path to that is the obedience that you would have to the things that I've commanded you to do. If you want to make it take a long time, you want to extend the payments for a few thousand years, then you go ahead and do whatever you want. And the Jews took that route. They said, we know that you're a jealous God. We know 
that upon us you placed your hand. We know that you preserved us alone in the wilderness. We know that you brought us out of bondage. We know, we know, we know, but we aren't going to do anything about it. They trampled the grace of God. Bad thing to do. God's grace is absolutely free, but in no way, shape, or form is it cheap. Don't forget that. It's free. It's absolutely free. It's unmerited favor by a God in heaven who from the beginning of time has loved you with an everlasting love. He wants to pour out upon us His grace. But it cost Him His Son and Jesus His life. It is not cheap. It was very expensive to buy you back, to buy me back, to pay for our sins. And God does not take it lightly. That's why the author of Hebrews says, don't do it. Don't trample the grace of God. Don't spit on the price that was paid because it comes at a very high price for you. It's going to cost you. Price of sin. Set the trumpet, it says in verse 1 of chapter 8, to your mouth, for he shall come like an eagle against the house of the Lord. Now, it sounds kind of interesting, but it's actually very easy to understand if you know your history a little bit. Uh, Apkalu, who is the spirit of the Assyrians, was an eagle god. And so this is speaking specifically of the Assyrians coming. And so he says, Put the trumpet to your mouth. I'll let him know this. Here's what's going to happen. He's saying, here's the deal. An eagle shall come against the house of the Lord because, notice he tells you why, God punishes us for the things. He allows things in our lives that are chastisements when we know it's wrong. God doesn't punish us for those things which we do not know are wrong. He punishes us for that which we know is wrong. That's why when you have a friend who's just deeply embroiled in sin and they don't know Jesus, they seem to get away with everything. It's like it doesn't really matter. It's like their life goes on, hardly anything ever happens. Matter of fact, they're happy in their sin. That's because they're ignorant. The Jews were not ignorant. They did not have that to fall back on. Because they noticed have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. If God holds his people to that standard, we are his people by adoption. We're not equivalent. We're not the same. We're not now Jews and the Jews don't exist. But the principle remains. Remember that. That what God said as a principle to the Jewish people applies in principle to us as his children of grace as well. He requires obedience of his people. He doesn't give us a free pass on everything. Now, does that mean that God is the angry, raging God that sits in heaven and he's just waiting to fry you at a moment's notice? Of course not. But it does mean he still has his standards and he means what he said and said what he meant. And so he tells them why. He says the Assyrians are going to come against the Jews because they've transgressed my covenant. I said, not that tough to keep that covenant, by the way, because it was all on God. All they had to do was remain faithful to him. Israel will cry to me, my God, we know you. You ever heard Christians do this? Oh, but I went forward at a Billy Graham crusade. I've been going to church now for at least two weeks. 
I've gone to church twice in one month in the last year. I went out and stole a Bible so that I'd have one. I'm really into this God thing. My God, we know You. But He goes on to say, you know what? Just what Jesus said, by their fruit you will know them. Israel has rejected the good. The enemy will pursue Him. They will set up kings, but not by me. They chose their path. They're walking in open rebellion to the things that God told them to do. And it doesn't go well. And it didn't go well. And the history books are replete with why it didn't go well. Google the Assyrian Empire when you get home. If you want to do a little study on this. And find out how much of the Jewish people were taken captive. It was ten of the twelve tribes. All but the tribe of Judah and Levi. Levi because they were the attendants in the, in the priesthood. And the tribe of Judah who was in the city of Jerusalem. Other than that, the ten northern tribes disappeared because of this eagle. God used them. God used the most vile empire that existed ever in the Middle East, by the way, who came from what is now modern-day Syria, which is about to become a very interesting place in the world. The Assyrians came. Israel has rejected the good. The enemy will pursue him. They have set up kings, but not by me. They made princes, but I did not acknowledge them. And they made them from silver and gold. They made idols for themselves that they might be cut off. Your calf is rejected, O Samaria. My anger is aroused against them. Oh, how long until they attain to innocence? How long are you going to keep up the charade? How long? Think God doesn't see? He sees. And from Israel, even this, a workman made it, and it's not God. Is that plain enough for you? Those idols that we craft with our hands, God didn't make them. You made them, I made them, we made them, fabricated them. But the calf of Samaria shall be broken into pieces. And so the house of the Lord, it begins to lay out this Spiritual principle that's just as indelible, just as immutable, absolutely as positively enforced today as it ever was of sowing and reaping. And so he says to them, you had the opportunity. You could have been one nation under God. Jeroboam the king was a godly king to some extent. He established an opportunity for you to worship me and instead you turned to the heathen pagan gods of your neighbors. And you began to do everything they did instead of anything I asked of you. I fear for Christians who think they're okay by simply going to church. If that's you, you need to seriously rethink your relationship with the Lord. If you think you're okay with God because you come to church, you are sadly and very sorely mistaken. Because you can go to church your whole life and never have a heart after God's heart. You can read the Bible through as a book of literature and never attain one spiritual truth from it. God had said to them, 
You are my people, and I am your God. And I am a jealous God. And so he says to them in the Ten Commandments, Thou shalt have no other God before me. He made it real clear. He further goes on to outline what that actually looks like. He spells it out. They weren't ignorant of those details. They willingly trampled the covenant of God. And so make sure you get the distinction here. We're not talking about a little slip. We're talking about you telling God, I know your word says that. I'm not going to do it. I know your word commands me to be like this, but I refuse and you're wrong. Very dangerous place to be. Now, is God's grace available? Of course. God's grace comes to the repentant heart that's humble. Grace is available for our weaknesses. But nowhere in your Bible is grace promised for rebellion. It's promised for our weaknesses and for our faults. Make sure you get the distinction. For some of you, this is for you to share with your kids. For some of you, this is for your friends. For some of you, maybe this is a spouse that's wayward right now. For some of you, it's someone in your family. For some of you, maybe it's for you. But I'm here to tell you that God hasn't changed. He still requires the same thing of his people. Whether by grace or through adoption, or whether by birth because you're one of God's kids, as a child of God in the nation Israel, whom he still loves and has a heart after. He expects us to do what he says. Instead of bringing the Israelites back to God, Jeroboam ultimately, the, Jeroboam the first, set up two golden calves. He set up one in the north uh, to be worshipped there in Dan, and, and the other in the south in Bethel to be worshipped in Samaria. And so basically, wherever you were, you could ignore God. That was the king of the Jews of the northern kingdom. When the kings elected by the people begin to make laws that kick God out of the public square, God steps in and intervenes. He always has. He always will. Look at the conditions that you see in Europe. Oh, the Age of Enlightenment came. We're very smart now. We're all so much more intelligent. So intelligent that we can't tell a man from a woman. We've come a long way, baby. And yes, I still remember those stupid cigarette commercials that were on television when I was a kid. And I thank God that they're not there anymore. But Mankind's capable of being real stupid. Israel had sowed Something really horrible. Look at verses 7 to 10. They sow the wind. They reap the whirlwind. The stalk has no bud. It will never produce a meal. And if it should produce, aliens will swallow it up. Foreigners will come in and take the produce of the land. For Israel is swallowed up. And now they're among the Gentiles. They were called out. As a people, 
He said, be ye therefore separate, says the Lord. That's what he told the Jews. He said, I don't want you to be like them. I want you to be like me. And so he says to them, you come out, you be different than these people that you live around. And they said, "Mm -mm, that's too hard. Your standards are too high. We don't like that. And it looks like they're having more fun than us. So we're going to do things our way. Now they are among the Gentiles. And this is exactly what happened in the Assyrian invasion. As the Assyrians came in the mid-800s B.C., as they began to march through what is now northern Israel, as they took these ten tribes and turned them into no tribe, they were among the Gentiles, so much so that they ceased to exist and to this day have never returned as the ten tribes. They will return in the very, very last days. There's a remnant around the world of all of these tribes, and they will be made known in the last days. But as of right now, try and find somebody that's from the tribe of Dan. You can't do it. Find somebody from the tribe of Benjamin. You can't do it. They'll tell you, well, we think when the temple records were destroyed, all of the records of those people that existed in the north were gone. Nobody can actually trace their lineage back. God will do that. He goes on like a vessel in which is no pleasure. Worthless pottery. You guys have those things. You want to see some of them? Look around the corner in the kitchen. It's all the junk that everybody's left for the last ten years. Worthless pottery. It's the same deal. You know what it is. Aunt Susie brought over that cake thing that you despise. And she brings it over with every cake. And you look at it and it's like, why would anyone own that? The old crusty Tupperware that, you know, just you, you, you pop it open and it has that funky plastic smell. And you should throw It's useless. You should throw it away like a vessel in which has no pleasure, for they have gone up to Assyria. Notice what happened. They said the Assyrians are coming. We're not going to defend our relationship with God. We're going to go try and make peace with them because they're the mightier force. Sometimes the decisions that Christians make are just based on public opinion, not on what God said. Well, the whole world says it's okay. It must be okay. If God says it's wrong, it's still wrong. What God says goes, period. End of conversation. It settles it. It's not up for negotiation. Now, you can either believe that and live that way, or you can try and make your own rules up as you go. And I guarantee you, if you're one of those people that says, I don't care what God says, I'm going to do what I want because the court of public opinion is on my side. You're going to find yourself on the wrong side of eternal history. You're going to be proven wrong because God's always right, 100% of the time. Not because I say so, because he said so. Like a wild donkey alone by itself. Have you ever seen donkeys when they're standing out in the middle of nowhere just braying at the top of their lungs? They haven't got a clue which way to go. We've got wild, you don't know this, maybe some of you, but we have wild donkeys here in the San Bernardino Mountains. We actually have quite a few of them, especially up in Big Bear. 
And every year we have kind of a festival and try and herd some of them up and get them into, you know, somebody to adopt them. If you adopt a wild donkey, you're dumb as a brick. <laughs> they are the consummate mean, nasty, evil, wayward animal. Yeah, they're stubborn, man. You get out there with it. That donkey will bite you, kick you, drag you. They do their own thing, man. You can't put a harness on them, and they're faster than a racehorse. I don't know how them little legs get going like that, but they do. And the picture here is of a wild donkey in the, in the time in the Middle East. They weren't about to be captured. They had their freedom. They were doing their own thing, going to go where they want to go, do whatever they want to do. They're headstrong, they're unruly, and they're obstinate. Sounds like some of the folks that we know, doesn't it? Drawn in all directions by nothing but carnal things. What can I eat? I got some lust going on after Mrs. Donkey over there, and I want some water over there. Eat, drink, be merry. Sound like anybody else you know? He's giving you a picture. This is the human condition. He's equating it to a wild donkey. The King James word is a little bit different. But it applies. And so he says, really, <laughs> you sowed the wind, you're going to reap the whirlwind. He, he, he makes the reference to what we would have by the time we get the book of Galatians as the Apostle Paul writes Galatians 6. He says, don't be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Don't be self-deceived. If you sow bad, carnal things, you're going to reap bad, carnal things of the flesh. Nobody's immune to this law. It doesn't mean God's trying to kill you. It doesn't mean He's trying to harm you. It doesn't mean He even wants to punish you. But it simply is an immutable spiritual law that if you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap of the flesh. And if you sow to the Spirit, you'll reap of the Spirit. So which do you want? It's your choice. It's my choice. It's our country's choice. For people who love the Lord, your choice is sow to the flesh or sow to the Spirit. It's yours. And to some degree, it's ours corporately. If we allow things to happen on our watch, if I as a pastor say nothing when these absurd, insane laws come down the pike and they are wrong according to God's word and I say nothing, then I have sown to the flesh. That's it. I don't care. I don't want to get involved. Trust me, it would be a lot easier to not get involved. But I can't. We can't. The spiritual law is absolute. And because of that, they were going to reap the Assyrian army. That's what's going to happen. He goes on to say, they've gone up after Assyria. Ephraim has hired lovers. They prostituted themselves. Said, you know what? We have such little value, and this is the tragedy of prostitution, and I don't care whether it's male, female, what kind of prostitution you want to talk about. When you talk about prostitution from the prostitute side, you have deemed yourself of so little value that you will sell yourself to the highest bidder. That's the truth. 
What a tragic end. What a tragic existence. These were God's chosen people who had sold themselves into slavery to another lover. It's tragedy. And it wasn't what God wanted. Yes, though they've hired among the nations, they kind of infiltrated the rest of the world system, so to speak. Now I will gather them, and they shall sorrow a little because of the burden of princes. What he's telling them is, guys, this isn't what I wanted for you. It's what you wanted for you. It isn't what I wanted in your life. It's what you wanted in your life. I wanted you to be well-pleasing to me, and you wanted to be well-pleasing to the Assyrians. I wanted you to walk with me in the cool of the day and understand my ways and walk in my blessings, and you saw the things of the world and you said, I can't live without this. And so you traded the righteousness of God for the unrighteousness of man. How many Christians do you know are still doing that? How many people know the truth and yet they refuse to walk in it? How many really have sold themselves for a couple of pounds of beans in a stew pot, just like Esau? Ever think of that? It's not what you ought to want to do. And because, verse 11 says, Ephraim has made many altars for sin, notice what they made the altars for. Their treasure was laid up to sin. Their construction projects were aimed at sin. The investment they made in their lives was toward sin. Everything they did was what they could do to get to the next behavioral issue that we would call sin. Do you get the picture? You remember when you weren't walking with the Lord how much time you you spent contemplating the garbage that you were going to do? Do you remember those days? Maybe some of you are pure as the driven snow. But I'm not buying it for most of you. Yeah, some of you were just awesome. But most of the rest of you know exactly what your Bible's telling you. When you were not walking with the Lord, you consumed most of your time, most of your energy, and most of your money chasing after the garbage of the world. It was how to get to the next party. And I can tell you, I'm ashamed of this, but I remember trying to see how many people I could cram into my 1961 Dodge Lancer and still get enough beer inside of it for us to all get drunk. I remember it. It was like, well, I think we get one more body and there'll still be enough room for a few more kegs in there. And as hideous as that sounds, I'm sharing this with you because that's your flesh. Now, praise God for His deliverance. Amen? Amen? I say amen. But the bottom line is, you put a lot of... I mean, you were doing the Tetris thing with the people. It's like, scoot over just a little bit. We can get one more keg in here. You know what I'm saying. You put a lot of effort in... That's what the Jews were doing. 
out there building a beautiful altar, and they got their stones, and they're stacking them up. And Man, isn't this altar awesome? And oh, by the way, we're going to fornicate behind it. That's actually what it says in the Hebrew. It was an altar for sin, specifically sexual sin. For they have become for him altars for sinning. In other words, after a while, their only purpose was to sin. You remember those days? You lived to sin. That was a mark of your B.C. days before Christ. Not a mark of who you are in Christ. It's a mark of what you got saved from. Amen? And so the Jews were doing it all the wrong way. Well, we'll just build this really nice altar for sin. It'll be beautiful and people will come from all around the countryside and they'll just look at it. I mean, it looks really nice. I have written for him great things of my law, but they were considered a strange thing. Would you underline that? How tragic is it when we once knew the great things of God's law, but now they're considered strange? God help us. God help us. God help us. We know what it says, but now they're foreign to us. How many people, how many politicians have you heard misquote some part of the Bible? How many people in positions of power have used the Bible to explain away? Well, you know, God's given us every green herb. So we're supposed to all toke it up, bro. It's a strange thing. We make it say what we want it to say. Not what it says. For the sacrifices of my offerings, they sacrifice flesh and eat it. God had forbidden cannibalism. And here they're doing the very thing that they're not supposed to do. God tells them, don't do this, and that's what they're doing. But the Lord does not accept them. And now He will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. Do you realize what He just said? When you're walking in open rebellion to God, God forgets nothing. And though He is absolutely long-suffering and eternally kind and loving and generous and good, all the way to the core of his being, being love, he still punishes sin. Always has, always will. Now, that punishment may not be what it once was because of grace, but you're still going to reap what you've sown. People come to me so very often, they go, I don't know why I have these thoughts. Well, it's because you spent 15 years thinking them. Well, I don't know why I have this behavior. It's because you spent 20 years doing them. Just because you gave your life to Jesus doesn't erase the stains of iniquity immediately. It doesn't place you in a place to where all of that has just mysteriously vanished. That's why your Bible tells you that there's consequences to our sin. That's why you're not supposed to do it as a believer. Now, graciously and wonderfully... When you go from an unbeliever to a believer, there's a massive amount of work that God does almost instantaneously to just cleanse you and to give you a, a lifted life that's, that's freed from that old bondage. But when you return to it after you've been saved, read Hebrews 4, 6, and 10. 
It's a scary thing. He punishes their sins. Notice what he says. For they shall return to Egypt. What is Egypt reference for us in the New Testament? It's bondage, right? Sin, flesh. You see, when you flirt with sin, when you flirt with flesh, when you flirt with the garbage that is the world, you're going to end up back in Egypt. You remember what the children of Israel did after they entered the promised land? Read that story again for yourself afresh and anew there in the book of Exodus. They spent 400 years making mud bricks. 400 years making mud bricks. Then God spares them miraculously and takes them out of bondage. And just to put an exclamation point on it, he parts the Red Sea. He said, I don't want you to think Moses had anything to do with this, so I'm going to do something Moses can't do. He delivers them. He begins to feed them miraculously with manna and quail. They then stroll across the desert and they can't find water and they come to the bitter springs of Marah and he says, Moses, take a tree and throw it into the water. I want to make it sweet for my people. A symbol of the cross. And he says, I'm going to make this water sweet to you. After doing all of that, do you remember what happened next? Oh, I long for the pots of meat in Egypt. I long for the vegetables and the leeks and the onions. Have you brought us out here in this wilderness to die? You see, they forgot the 400 years of making mud bricks without straw. Just like that. They forgot what they'd been delivered from. They forgot what God had done in their lives. Now do you know why God was so serious in this passage of Scripture? He says, man, really? Honestly? You want to go back there? You want to be in bondage again? Is that what you really want? But he says to them, they shall return to Egypt. Why? For Israel has forgotten its maker. Oh my goodness. You mean when I forget God and who He is and what He's done, He might let me return to Egypt? Uh Uh-huh. And I guarantee you there's probably most of us can testify to that truth in this room. Maybe you spent some time walking with the Lord and then you decided maybe this isn't working out so good and you returned and you walked in bondage right back to Egypt. You got delivered as a prodigal son or a prodigal daughter and you went right back to the pig trough. He says, I'll punish their sins. They forgot their maker. They built temples. 
And Judah has also multiplied fortified cities. They, they, they make it seem as though they can defeat God. Well, if we join sides with the Assyrians, we'll just build up some fortified cities, and then no matter what happens, we'll be fine. Wouldn't make that bet if I were you. Wouldn't take those odds if I were you. For the people that contemplate such things, well, you know, it's not going to be that bad. Oh, it'll be much worse than you think. How many marriages have fallen apart because of the return to Egypt? How many people have returned to a life of drugs or alcohol because they returned to Egypt? How many people have ended up in all manner of sinful behavior because of a desire to return to Egypt, thinking that Egypt won't be able to keep me. I'll just build a fortified city. I'll get right next to Egypt and I'll just build a really nice castle. It'll be a good castle. Matter of fact, I'm going to invite people over once a year and I'm going to show the Christmas story. And on Easter, we're going to show the greatest story ever told. Because after all, I love God. But I'm going to get right next to Egypt, and I'm going to build me a fortified city, and actually I want to live in Egypt. It does not work, ever. Oh, the enemy will be telling you, it'll be fine. The enemy will be going, hey, can I come in? I don't mean you any harm. After all, look, I'm an angel of light. We were driving through Vegas both times when we were going to Utah. We drove through Vegas during the daylight hours. It is such a contrast. When you look at Vegas at night, you're like, wow, the Stratosphere Tower. Oh, there's the Bellagio. And look at the fountains. And there's a pirate ship over there in Lagoon. And oh, blue lights. And, you, and you look at it during the daytime. You're like, is that a river of vomit? <laughs> you don't want to be living next to Egypt. For I will send fire upon his cities, and it shall devour his palaces. God only lets it go so long, folks. He only lets it go so long. And then he says, if you want it, you got it. You sowed it, you get to reap it. Now, obviously we did not get to chapter 9. We'll get that one next week. My bust, but... It's the way the Spirit works sometimes. Having said all of that, completely unavoidable if you're a sinner that doesn't have the grace of God, but completely avoidable if you know Jesus and you walk in the Spirit. You see, God doesn't want us to ever go through these things. And that's the beauty of this for us as the body of Christ. He tells us these things to remind us of the truth. It's like all warning signs. I, I was I, I literally I was laughing in the spirit when I was driving through Utah. I love the roads in Utah. Eighty mile an hour speed limits. And nobody drives eighty. They drive eighty five, ninety. 
Occasionally you get blown by at a hundred and something, you know. I'm just like, you know, if it weren't for all the Mormons, I could live here. But I had to laugh, and here's why. You drive into town, now entering a 75-mile-an-hour zone. You're, pulling, you're going into town, and they want you to slow down to 75. It's like, yes, my kind of city. But it was a warning sign to tell you that, hey, you've been driving, and out here's mostly been antelopes and beavers, and, uh, you know, an occasional cow or something out there in the pasture, and... You know, my, there's a beaver dam. There's actually beavers in the beaver. I'm like, those are beavers. That's cool. So you're kind of enamored with the whole, it's a beaver on a beaver dam. I don't think I've ever seen one of those unless you go to Hocum Valley. You drive by and you get to town. It's like, oh, yeah, I probably ought to slow down. God tells us to slow down. Amen? Tells us to take a look on what's going around us. Get in touch with what's happening in your life spiritually. Make sure that you're not just kind of, you know, out there on the open road going, well, whatever happens. You know, it's so crazy because here we are driving through Utah and there's a moose. You know, moose are 1,200 pounds. You hit a moose, your car's totaled. I mean, it's just over. You just go get a new car if you live. We survived all that. Drove through the wonderful Provo Valley and fished the Provo River and we're driving through all these places, and there's animals everywhere. You know, elk crossing. It's crazy. They actually have crosswalks for deer in Utah. Seriously. There's like, has a little crosswalk, and it says deer crosswalk on there. It's like, I go, well, how do the deer know to go there? It's because they have fences, and they, you know, funnel them right in these deer crosswalks. But I'm telling you what, you better heed it, because that's the only place they can go across the road. You can't believe how many... Pieces of car and everything else are scattered on the shoulders of the road at exactly that spot. Because somebody ignored the signs. Oh, yes, you're deer crossing. <laughs> right, yeah. And about that time, a hundred point buck jumps in front of him. And <laughs> you never know when that thing's going to run out in front of you. And that's true spiritually in your life. God's trying to protect you by sending you signals and signs. He's giving you His Word and saying, this is, this is how you ought to live your life. And if you do that, you're going to be fine. But if you ignore the signs, you may just plow into something you don't want to hit. Amen? Don't do that. Would you pray with me? Father, thank You for this patient group, Lord. Pray that you would speak these truths now into our lives, God. And We really do want your blessings and we realize that your blessings flow from obedience. God, you're, you're generally always good in that sense, but you bless the obedient. And Lord, we also know that your judgment falls on those who are disobedient. Lord, that's not a hard choice. Help us to choose wisely. Help us to walk in the Spirit and therefore not fulfill the desires of our flesh. Lord, help us to see the signs. Help us to slow down. Help us to do the things that are necessary for us to be in the midst of your will. We love you. We praise you. We bless you. We thank you for your word, the power of it to transform us. We ask these things in Christ's precious name. 
Amen.